the United States and the Soviet Union on a sheet of ice in Lake Placid, New York. Muller trying to turn. There's the left foot. What a tracking shot. Johnny Muller. If you see a 9-9, Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'll be hosting the series, asking each guest to choose an important document or artefact they think is of great significance in the Cold War sports arena. Race was the propaganda Achilles heel of the United States during the Cold War, but the prowess of America's black athletes could not be denied. The Olympic achievements of Jesse Owens, for instance, had established that many years ago, even if there had been little progress in improving the domestic position of African Americans in US society. Throughout the Cold War, however, the US State Department keyed into the black athletic community to counter these charges of racism at home, which came mainly from their Cold War opponents, by deploying black sports stars as cultural ambassadors and even diplomats in Africa. Kevin Witherspoon is a professor of history at Lander University in Greenwood, South Carolina, and the author of an award-winning book about the Mexico Olympics, the scene, of course, of the black power protest. Give us an example of, uh, of one of these black sports stars making that transition into being some kind of cultural and diplomatic figure. Well, thank you, Vince. The figure that I'm focusing my study on lately is Mal Whitfield, or Malvin Whitfield, who is perhaps not a household name, but he maybe should be. He should rank among the, the great black American athletes from Joe Lewis, Jesse Owens, Jackie Robinson, through Hank Aaron, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and others. Um, but he's often forgotten. Mal Whitfield was a five-time Olympic medalist. Uh, he's a contemporary of Jackie Robinson. He was in the 1948 and 1952 Olympics. And more than any other athlete, he made the transition from athlete to diplomat. Uh, the American government utilized black athletes frequently during the Cold War uh, on diplomatic trips abroad. They might last a few weeks, maybe a few months. Uh, but no other athlete I can think of transitioned from these brief trips to a, a career of almost 40 years as a diplomat in Africa. Let's pull all this apart then. Tell me about his uh, prowess as an athlete, and then let's see how he got into being one of these diplomatic figures. Yeah. Uh, Whitfield was really one of the great track stars of that era, the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, his specialty was the 400 and 800 meter sprints or run. Uh, he broke the world record at least nine times. That's on record. There may have been many more in practice or in lesser events. Uh, he also was the first African-American to win the Sullivan Award uh, in 1954. That goes to America's top amateur athlete. Uh, so his athletic credentials are uh, as good as you could ever ask for. He's one of the, the top track athletes of his day. You mentioned uh, 1948 Olympics, that's London. How did he do there? He won two gold medals in the 800 meters, which really was his specialty, uh, and also in the 4 by 400 meter relay. And he uh, also won the bronze in the 400 meters in London. And then in Helsinki, 1952, uh, he repeated uh, with the gold medal in the 800 meters and took a silver in the 4 by 400 meter relay. 
This is really the birth of the Cold War. This is, in fact, possibly actually before the official parameters of the Cold War. How does Whitfield make that journey? When is his career finishing? He goes to Helsinki in 52, mm -hmm. yes. How does he make that transition as a, as a black athlete? Uh, into uh, the State Department. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the interesting things first uh, about Whitfield's career is that he was in the military as well. Uh, he served in World War II and in the Korean War, and so it's in the midst of his military service that he's training for the Olympics and winning these medals in the Olympics. So that's a remarkable achievement as well. He was training for the 1956 Olympics. He wanted to make one more go and ended up not qualifying for those Olympics. And that was sort of the crossroads in his uh, life and career, 1955 to 56, when the writing was on the wall that uh, his athletic career was winding down. He had done a number of these State Department tours already and uh, cherished that experience and was deeply committed to the whole process. And so opportunities arose for him to extend his time abroad and he just transitioned straight into this career as a diplomat. One of the things when you study the tours that many of these athletes made, each of them had their own motivations for going abroad. Um, many of them didn't know what they were getting in for, and a lot of them viewed it as something of a personal vacation or a personal experience. Whitfield was one of those who really had a deep curiosity about other parts of the world. He was deeply committed to improving things in Africa and the more time he spent abroad, the more deeply committed he became. And so it, it, he really did adopt that as his lifestyle, his career, and his mission. You throw in his military service, and here's a man with a, a deep inclination to serve his country. It is starting to add up, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, he's a really interesting figure during this period. And, and one of the things that I uh, explore over his life is what may seem a contradiction um, because he is deeply committed to his nation. He is a patriotic American and yet the longer he spends abroad and remember we're also in the period of the civil rights movement and there's violence on the home front and uh, the March on Washington in 1963 was a real turning point moment for him as well. He grows more and more frustrated with this nation that he serves and that he loves and wants to promote and he's doing this essentially as an outsider looking back at the country that he's from. As a black diplomatic figure who's going abroad and almost kind of uh, troubleshooting these criticisms of racism at home, which I'm sure he would find difficult to deny, but he is also out there as a, as a kind of role model in a way and engaged with black foreign diplomats abroad. I mean, that's a lot of tension, isn't there, for a man, for one man, to take? Yeah. Well, you're getting right at the heart of the issue now, because there are a lot of really interesting, these kind of internal battles that must have taken place in the mind and heart of someone like Whitfield. I don't think, uh, from reading a lot about him, reading his own words and documents, I don't think he ever took it as his mission to change people's minds about racism in the United States. In fact, as his career goes on, he becomes more and more outspoken about the problems he sees at home. Um, what he describes as his mission is teaching people about sports, teaching them to enjoy the, the rich benefits that sports can teach us about, um, serving their own countries, wherever they might be from, 
and those sorts of things. He never, to my knowledge, spoke openly about this idea that it's my job to downgrade the racist situation in the United States or to change people's minds about that. Let's leave Mal Whitfield for, for a moment and talk about the uh, the U.S. State Department policy, missionary policy almost, isn't it? To go out into the field and win hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. Where is that operational and how successful? Well, now, from the vantage point of the State Department, I think they did think it was Mal Whitfield's mission to go out and change people's minds about racism. And so that becomes one of the interesting dynamics at work. In the early years of the Cold War, so late 40s, really escalating through the 50s, and then through much of the 60s, the State Department sent athletes abroad, almost spanning the entire globe. And that would include African-American athletes as well. They focused in some ways on the front lines of the Cold War, parts of the globe whose allegiances might have been uncertain. We do see a lot of these athletes sent to Africa. We see them sent to Southeast Asia, sent to Latin America, uh, to parts of Europe as well. But these tours really spanned the entire globe. I'm particularly curious about those African-American athletes who traveled to Africa and what that meant to them and the impact they had. And so where are they going in Africa and why are they going there in the Cold War? Yeah. Uh, they went to almost every part of Africa, and when you study the uh, the consular documents, they come from northern Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, the Horn, uh, all over the continent. Um, as far as the impact they had, this is another tricky question, because some of what we're relying on are what we might call second-hand documents. A lot of what I've been able to look at are State Department documents reports uh, from the agents abroad. And they have an interest, I think, in making these missions appear successful. Uh, And so you hear a lot of raving reports. On the other hand, these agents didn't rave about everyone who came. And so when Mal Whitfield uh, seems to have a particular impact, I think we can take that to mean that he did have some impact, at least in the eyes of, of the agents who were reporting on it. Where does he go into, and is this in some way, is he some kind of Cold War missionary? He's trying to persuade people that the U.S. is okay? That's not a bad way to put it, a Cold War missionary. Um, He spends time in Nigeria, several years in Nigeria. Um, He trained the Ethiopian athletes for a time, Kenyan athletes. He really is in some ways the father of African athletics and track and field. He coached a lot of the great African figures. Um, But again, I'm not sure that he thought it was his job to change people's minds about American policy. He really viewed himself as kind of an ambassador of sport itself and a coach. And, And he saw a lot of benefits to be gained from that in the lives of these young athletes. And the fact that he's a successful Olympic quality athlete who happens to be an American who can train these athletes who don't have the same opportunities means that the fact that he's there is enough in itself. There is something to that, yeah. The fact that a famous person, now I mentioned Mal Whitfield may not be a household name now, a lot of these aspiring athletes around the world would have known who he was maybe even seen him at some point. 
And so to see a person of that stature arrive in their town, in their little village, for many of them must have been a life-changing experience. Uh, and I think that's where the State Department is kind of hinging its hopes that this is a sign that we care about you. And uh, it's difficult to, to say with certainty how well that message was received on the ground. But you do see over decades, uh, Mal Whitfield training many top athletes, a lot of these programs, you look even now uh, in distance running, it's all about the Kenyans and the Ethiopians, which is some of Mal Whitfield's legacy. Which is a, a hell of a legacy, actually, exactly isn't it? Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, that's what distance running is all about, yeah. isn't it, nowadays? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we added the medals of all of kind of his protégés to Whitfield's five medals, you would have a, a pile of them. How successful was this policy of bringing uh, African nations on side? In simplest terms, he's an athlete, he's a coach, he's trying to teach people how to run. To say that this translates directly into significant political gain for the United States, I think is a bit of a leap. Um, the State Department, the government had those kind of hopes. I'm not sure that we really see it translated on paper, but there's definitely an athletic impact. You see that legacy. Does the uh, U.S. State Department make these inroads into African nations through sport and then try and uh, kind of prime the pump a little bit more politically, diplomatically, in aid terms? Is it using sport as a, as a method of penetration? That is the idea, and it serves as something of an opening wedge to get into some of these countries where we might not have had a relationship before. Um, all of these tours involved much more than just sporting events. Uh, the athletes would always have meetings with local dignitaries and officials, and they would uh, attend dinners and sometimes meet with very important uh, heads of state that are proper diplomats hadn't been able to meet. Um, but there's, uh, there's something innocent, and in theory there's something non-political about sports that allowed those doors to be opened. And then in theory we could follow through with more formal negotiations after that. As the shutters are coming down across Africa that's right. uh, through the Marxist regimes supported by Moscow, etc. Yeah, that's right. Now in a denouement to the Whitfield story, and bringing this into your book about the 68 Olympics at Mexico, where, of course, there's the Black Power protest. Mal Whitfield's kind of in there too, isn't he? Whitfield is in there to some degree. Uh, he does sympathize with the Black Power athletes, and we certainly see his views changing over the course of the early to mid-1960s. I wouldn't say he's among the most radical of the black athletes, and part of that is from his background and upbringing. He doesn't mention the kinds of racial violence, uh, awful racist incidents that um, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Harry Edwards, many of these others reference in their own lives. Um, it's more a frustration. He's been living in Africa for years and seeing all kinds of progress and change. These nations coming from nothing, from war-torn ruin, and they're making great strides. And then he sees in our country continued frustration and limitation, and he hears about and sees some of the incidents that the other athletes encounter. So he's a part of that mix. He sympathized with the Black Power protest. Uh, he didn't really participate in it himself.
But the symbolism of the black power process was the thing that, that touched the nerve, isn't it? The symbolism and the beads and the shoes and all this kind of stuff symbolising the poverty and the oppression. Uh, it's hard to argue with, actually, from a certain perspective, isn't it? Right. And we see Whitfield's mind um, changing around 1963 or 64. He actually advocated a boycott of the 1964 Olympics. Uh, by that point, he, of course, was a retired athlete himself, but his frustration had already reached a point where he supported a boycott in 64. And absolutely, by 1968, all of these kind of tensions are boiling over. Uh, you throw in the war in Vietnam, which has contributed to so many other protests. And uh, so, yeah, the symbolism of that protest just brought everything to a, to a head. It's possible because, of course, the tension of the black American experience is that it is your country, it just you've been excluded from it uh, to some extent. These are the, these are the turbulent times that uh, the black community lived in, and these, this is the sense that he made of it. He's a man who, in a way, is true to his people. Well, I agree with that, and I think one of the other interesting elements about Whitfield is that so much of his experience takes place out of the country. And so he's, in some ways, an observer of what is going on in the United States, even though it is certainly his country and he remains uh, a patriotic American even now. Um, so those thoughts never leave him, but uh, we do see this uh, frustration that his country is not making greater progress. I can almost imagine him sipping his coffee in Addis Ababa and reading about what's happening in America at the time, shaking his head and tutting and thinking, when will they ever learn? Well, it, it's interesting you mentioned it in those terms. He writes in his books about exactly those kinds of experiences. He really does hear about and read about these experiences from his vantage point, wherever he might have been in Africa at, at that particular time. Um, and he was so moved by it that it did drive him to return for one brief stretch to attend the March on Washington in 1963. Uh, he was so struck by all of the changes going on in his country that he came back uh, for just a space of a couple of months to, to kind of reconnect with his country. So he made the journey all the way back for the March on Washington to have his say in one of the most important processes of American social history. That's exactly right. He, he said he just thought he had to be there for that moment. And so why don't we know more about this man? Well, it's something of a mystery. Uh, I think part of it is just the process of doing history. Um, there's a group of us now out here studying any number of these kind of athletes, and maybe this is a, a stone that just hasn't been turned over yet. Um, but I do think, you know, there's a household name kind of cachet with a Jesse Owens, a Jackie Robinson, a Muhammad Ali, uh, there's an abundance of documents and material, and so scholars kind of return over and over again to those kind of familiar figures. And Mal Whitfield has just slipped through the cracks a little bit for whatever reason. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Center's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. 
These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.